I live in the weak and the wounded. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. They will say that I have shed innocent blood. What's blood for, if not for shedding? She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. I like to dissect girls. Did you know I'm utterly insane? Hello? How do you know my name? I didn't tell you my name. Hang up. I didn't tell him my name. They're all a part of it. They're all pods, all of them. Whatever you do, don't fall. They mostly come at night. Mostly. I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. What do we do? Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. Welcome to Critics Not Cynics, the podcast that tries to prove that you can be a critic without being a cynic. And this week is our fourth, but not final, installment of Let's Scare Leslie to Death. Um, We will have a bonus episode coming out on Halloween. Uh, We'll be covering Trick or Treat, which of course, as anyone that listened to the podcast last year knows, it's my favorite Halloween movie. I watch it every year on Halloween. In fact, we were talking last night at the uh, reception because uh, Pat's wife wanted to do um, a scary movie night that night, but I think one or both of them are working, so after they work, they're going to come over here. We're going to set up the projector outside if it's not raining and it's not cold out, set around a fire pit, and watch it outside uh, on probably projected on a wall. But that's going to be that will be our final installment, but instead of jumping ahead of ourselves here, we're going to talk about this week, continuing on with John Carpenter. We teased it last week. In the Mouth of Madness. Um, sorry beforehand if we end up saying Into the Mouth of Madness or Just the Mouth of Madness uh, because sometimes it's a little hard to keep it straight in your head on which one it actually is. But with that said, uh, the premise of the movie, if you're not familiar with it, is an insurance investigator, which Leslie and I should know a little bit about insurance, uh, begins discovering that the impact of a horror writer's books have on on his fans are more than inspirational. So with that said, we will go ahead and play the trailer for you. You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. I need to know if he's alive or dead, and I need that book. It's a setup. It's a setup. I just have to work out how it's set up. Kane's writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. See this? It's a 
map. This whole thing has been staged. You just get out. This is not reality. It's all happening for real, Trent. So that was the trailer. So, Leslie, I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, what were your thoughts on this movie? Okay. So this might be the hot take, but I actually liked this one the best. Oh, this man. The best one, I think, so far. Just as far as the total package of the idea and the execution of the idea. Okay. So as far as if, if we were judging strictly on the idea and which one intrigued me the most, that would be the thing. But I don't feel like the execution was as completely there. I for the thing it was the idea and then the ending that was really really good. Okay. Um, for mouth of madness or yeah, like you said, it's it's a mouthful. Mouth of madness. <laughs> um, this one I feel like was overall. So the whole hour and however long it was, I enjoyed the whole time. There wasn't any point where I felt like this is really slow and I'm getting kind of bored, you know, or or anything like that. Um, one of the first things when I was watching it, was Sam Neill, yes. David Warner, John Glover. I was like, I like this guy, and I like this guy, and I like that guy. And I was all happy and excited to see all of those actors that I really enjoy watching. Um, again, there were some really interesting shots, like the shot in um, is the mental asylum, and it's oh, yeah. down the hallway. I was like, oh, that's really cool. So there was a lot of interesting camera work here, and I think this was the best um, character work that he's done with Sam Neill, and I don't know if that's a combination of Sam Neill being a really good actor, um, but this was, I felt like the best, because I actually felt connected to his character, and was invested in what was going to happen to him, unlike the other ones where I felt like, yeah, there's a big cast of characters, and you're supposed to focus in on these one or two, but there wasn't enough time for me to really care about those one or two. This one, I feel like, he gave that character enough room to breathe and for me to feel like I'm invested in what happens to him. And also, yeah, it doesn't hurt that he's an insurance investigator. <laughs> and insurance is what we do right. for our day job. Uh, so that was funny. That was really funny to me. Uh, I just that you know, tickled me. Especially that opening scene with, again, um, we've talked about it, kind of some of the recurring actors in John Carpenter films. Peter Jason, who was uh, one of the scientists in the last film, he was also the lead, kind of one of the leaders in the resistance of They Live. He being kind of the greasy, well, okay, I'm ready for my claim check and everything, and then they do the whole saying, well, well you know, well, hey, we've got some pictures of your wife in these articles, and, and oh, and your, um, uh, and your assistant. And then the best, I think that best line in that scene is, uh, if you're um, going to like commit fraud, don't make your wife a partner. And if you do, don't <laughs> fuck around on her. Exactly. That is so funny. I'm sure there could be a whole podcast out there somewhere of claims people talking oh, yeah. about stuff like that. That would be so funny. Probably only to people like us work in the biz right <laughs> but it is hilarious the things that people come up with absolutely uh, um anyway so the the idea that you know is 
is this reality only because uh, is it Sutter? His Sutter Kane, yeah. Yeah, Sutter Kane is is he writing reality? Is this really reality and something weird is going on? You know, with the alien, what a Lovecraftian sort the of cosmic horror. You know, yeah. these like old the, gods or the old ones. Yeah, and like we discussed last week, that destruction of reality sort of a thing. Yeah, it's yeah. really, really interesting. And especially when he gets to the town and he and they finally get there. I was like, this is just so interesting. Um, and I believe I talked to you. I said, this really reminds me of a Star Trek episode. Oh, yes, yes, um, yes. Yeah, from Next Generation called Frame of Mind. And it's where Commander Riker is in a mental asylum. And we start with him in a mental asylum. And he's kind of going back and forth between, am I this guy who's mentally ill in this asylum, or am I actually Commander Riker from the Enterprise? And the aliens are kind of really, um, like, jerking his chain around, you know, trying to get him to believe that he's in this mental asylum and he's actually mentally ill. Uh, I forget for what purpose that they wanted from him. But it's really interesting Riker-centric episode. And this reminded me of that, like, it was basically frame of mind with a movie budget, and it was really, really interesting. Um, I'm going to look through my notes here real quick. What else did I write down? Um, it also reminds me, if anybody listens to the Glass Cannon podcast, <laughs> and they did uh, New Game Who Dis, and they, they played Delta Green, which delves into all this cosmic horror, uh, Lovecraftian stuff, but set it's set more in like the late 2000s. Oh, okay. Like, or, or, I mean, early 2000s, sorry. Uh, that 90s, 2000s era, and it's really interesting. And if you don't listen to them, go listen to them. You know? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Shout out, GCP. <laughs> yes, the fantastic podcast to listen to, especially if you're kind of a fan in the fantasy and role-playing. It's, you know, they do Pathfinder and... and or yeah, I believe they do um, Pathfinder, or do they do D&D? Yeah, they, they do Pathfinder. They also do Starfinder, which yes. I actually like better. Just because, again, I'm a sci-fi person, so right. I like the sci-fi holds my attention more than the fantasy does, just for whatever reason. <laughs> um, they've done on their on their Patreon. They've done a Star Wars uh, game. They did the new game Hootis. They're playing um, Legacy of the Ancients, something or Runes Ruins of Azalant, and something else. Oh they've, they've yeah, all kinds I, of different ones. Yeah, I remember that being one of them. Um, but yeah, they're a great podcast to listen to. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll do a shout out to them. But back to Mouth of Madness. I'm, uh, there was so much in it that was so interesting to me. Again, it's one of those where I feel like John Carpenter has really interesting ideas that I wish could be dressed up in different clothes. Yeah, you know, I would. Because, I would agree with that. Yeah, because this this one was so interesting to me. I think when we were texting and I was talking about Frame of Mind. I wanted this to be totally frame of mind. I didn't need the tentacle aliens or anything <laughs> like that to to really get the psychological horror part of it because you don't know what's happening. Like, I don't need the little kids running around with the weird makeup or the guy with the axe. and his, Like, I don't need any of the horror trappings to get the horror across if you really focused in right. on that psychological element. Are we real? Are we not real? Is he writing us? We're just in a book. Like, all of that. But the whole... Uh, yeah, the whole of it was uh, really, really good, and I think we did discuss that the ending is a little bit weak. There are different places where we said maybe cut it off here or do something a little bit different to strengthen that ending a little bit. Right. But otherwise, yeah, this was my favorite one. <laughs> yes, this is um, this is one I can't remember how I actually came across it because I 
you know, for the longest time, I think about when I, of course, when I was younger, the, about the only film I ever really, like, saw Sam Neill in was Jurassic Park. So he was always Dr. Alan Grant. He was always kind of the hero character and the good guy. And then once I kind of getting, got into horror, finding out, of course, he played Damien in one of the Omen movies. Um, the late, I think it was like the Omen 4. Uh, he, he plays a grown-up Damien. Um, and then Event Horizon and this, and kind of also finding out that he's a more robust actor and seeing him in these different um, film genres was really interesting. And um, so I knew, like, immediately, as soon as I saw he was involved in this, I was like, okay, well, I've got to watch it. It's also, again, John Carpenter film. Um, and as a, as a fan of Lovecraft, I do really like the cosmic horror aspect of it. Um, and it's it just, it's one of those movies, like you talked about, it kind of just, it, it was just, it starts strong and it runs all the way through. It, it starts, of course, it's an in-media res, you know, starting where basically all the events of the movie have already taken place, but we have him recounting it for David Warner's character, and um, then we experience all the prior events. Um, I... I it, so it starts kind of at a, at a, you know, zero to 60 and it runs straight through, which I think is what, in my opinion, kind of hurts the movie a little bit because I wanted, I, I would appreciate it or not necessarily appreciate, but I would have preferred this movie been maybe about 20 minutes longer. Um, like we said, some things needed to be fleshed out more. And I think one of the areas that really needed fleshing out, and I think we discussed this uh uh, after we had both rewatched it, or well, rewatched it for me, watched it for you the first time, um, was the the town of Hobbs End needed more fleshing out. Like we can understand that the characters of Sykes and and um, Sam Neill's character, uh, Trent, they um, they're aware of every trapping and like what the the town is set up to be and how the characters are meant to act and stuff like that because they've read Sutter Kane, which I should have started this uh, you know asking do you read Sutter Kane since that's a big big line throughout the entire movie, um, and so we once we get to the town it's like then it really amps up the speed and everything happens in quick 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 succession and then we're at the end and it left me wanting more um but i do we we talked a little bit about the kind of the apocalypse trilogy this is the final entry into that where it's again it's the, the destruction of reality um and i do kind of like that concept with this because like you said our are we of our own free will or are we just the writings of Sutter Kane? Because even though, and there, I think there are subtle hints throughout the movie that really kind of actually hit on the point that Trent is not necessarily a real person. Um, we never see him. I mean, we see him interact with the insurance company, um, but we're only brought into that first case at the beginning uh, and then we get introduced to the Sutter Kane case. But whenever we see him at home, uh, actually, I think even each sequence of him in his apartment or his house, whatever, whatever he's living in, the furnishings get less and less and less. We don't have any personal pictures. We don't have really anything that shows that this place is a lived in apartment or house. Um, at most, there's really only a liquor tray, because of course he's kind of a PI, you know, type character. 
Um, and then he's got his TV, and then he's got his stuff to take notes and phone calls. So, like, I think that those are subtle hints that he's a creation of Sutter Kane rather than being an actual real person. And again, it comes into that question of what is real, what isn't real. Sykes's character, um, going back to that Dinah Geek article that we referenced last week, um, talked a little bit about her character in that she is also the the only point that she is served to be is uh, just a an exposition tool. She is not even meant to be really a real character, which is why she's not there at the end. That when her part at the near the end of the movie. When she hands him the manuscript, it's she says, my part is done. It's uh, This is all that's been written for me, meaning that she was only there to be there at the publishing company to escort Trent because she's the only one that actually gets them to Hobbs End because uh, he's asleep in the car, and then to give him the manuscript. Like, that's her purpose. That's what she serves. Um, no, that's really interesting. Like, like, she's exposition, basically. Yeah. Because, I mean... As, as the character. When the you, character exposition. <laughs> right. Well, and when you think about it, too, like, when they show up to the town and he's, you know, going, well, this isn't, you know... Because if this were re- if this were the book, outside this window would be a, a black Byzantine church with gold onions on top, and he opens up the window, and it's just farmland, and she goes, well, you didn't read closely enough. It's this side, and she opens up the window, and there's the church. Um, and in fact, like the, the creature kids are calling her basically their mummy and stuff like that, or mom. And, um, she's really just there as a tool for Sutter Kane. And I think there were also in that article references that, um, you know, Kane is of course an amalgamation of like Lovecraft and Stephen King, um, that like criticisms of King's writing about how some of his female characters aren't really well written and stuff like that, like that characters within the movie are deliberately set up to kind of be that way. Um, which is again, kind of that fascination of what is real, what isn't real. And I think it also explored the idea that the only reason these things are kind of coming back from the void or whatever is only because of the influence that Kane's writing has had on the widespread audience and that they're, he even says it in the movie, like, you know, I've sold more copies than the Bible. And that's his books have become the new religion. And when you think about it, that concept in actual 2020 time and how fandom versus creators, yeah. it, it's people do take these works and they do create a religion essentially around them. So this kind of takes that concept and takes it a step further. Well, what if by the people worshiping this creation brings that creation into life. So I, thematically, I think, again, it's a really, really strong movie. Like you said, it brings up a lot of interesting ideas, concepts, um, really good shots. It, it just, um, some things in the execution, I, I think, again, the, the ending, like we said, it needed to be fleshed out a little bit more. I do like the concept of him going and basically watching the movie we just watched, because it even says on the marquee, John Carpenter's in the mouth of madness. Um, but that him endlessly kind of laughing. And then we assume he begins to change. I think if you're going to do that, you need to show that the actual change. Um, and I didn't like that they cut off there, but I liked your idea too. 
after the asylum and everything kind of finally going to hell and the monsters yeah. attacking, he just opens up the door, walks out, and you, you cut the black there. Yeah, cut right there. Because I think that would be kind of... I think we already kind of got the idea that um, the world was ending by that point. So right. When you're getting to that ending, you already know like what's going on. You know, it must be terrible. You hear all like the screaming and everything overnight. And to just have it where like his door just kind of swings open and Samuel just walks out. Like we don't even have to follow him up the hallway. I mean, right. we could. But even if we just left it focused on his door and he walks out of the frame and then cut to black right there, I think would have made more impact of an ending than following him around, following him to the theater, watching him watch the movie, and then cutting. Yeah, especially since um, it, that seems so kind of antithetical to his character. Because the whole thing about his character, again, well, one, he's a very strong skeptic. And, I mean, and he's written to be a strong skeptic. But now he believes, but he also wants to survive. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, and for him to finally give in feels like a character turn that doesn't seem consistent with the character. Yeah, I would have... if. If we followed him after he went out, like you said, maybe 20 more minutes, because yeah. I want to see him looking for those people on the radio who are still sane and maybe kind of, I don't know, creating a little last resistance of humanity or right. something with them. Something more like that, maybe even a whole part two to it. Um, John Carpenter, sequel, please. <laughs> <laughs> Trent doesn't go crazy and he finds the survivors and we get to see what happens. <laughs> Anybody interested in that idea? Do well, you, we I don't. Starter or I don't. <laughs> I don't know if you can continue with Trent's character because I mean we've we've kind of seen. I mean we haven't seen the, the his eventual fate, but he did go and right. and consume the the product essentially. So maybe he'll be like their new messiah who <laughs> saw the face of God, but who can interpret it for them? You know. Maybe and, and you know that's one one character or one actor we haven't really talked about. I mean we've mentioned the character of Sutter Kane, but Jurgen Prochnow as Sutter Kane I think is even though he has so small screen time, which is it's intentional. I mean it's it's meant to be that way. When he does show up, I think his performance is outstanding. I think you really see this guy who has realized that the impact of his writing and what it has done to millions and millions of people. And there is that kind of hint of resistance in him as well, especially in his final sequence when he's like, I'm, I've been holding them back. I can't hold them back anymore. Even though he is becoming the new, the new god, essentially, uh, the new creator there was that little scrap of humanity left in him, even though it might be that it was a self-serving because it gets Trent away, even though Trent still tries to destroy the manuscript a couple times afterwards. Um, but it, I really liked kind of that con conflicting character a little bit. Yeah, it that just, while listening to you talk there, just reminded me of a TED Talk I listened to, and I believe her name was Elizabeth Gilbert. She's the woman who wrote uh, Eat, Pray, Love. But she was talking about our artists, um, just in general, whether that's writers, actual artists, musicians, things like that, and this concept of genius and what that word used to mean, and, and how we think of a lot of artists, like when we think of a writer, kind of a stereotype is that they're sitting there at the typewriter, maybe cigarette, cigars, a lot of whiskey, you know, something like that. Like We have this, this idea that they're this tortured genius or a tortured artist, things like that, and how... 
but like they um, commit suicide. I believe was it Ernest Hemingway yeah. with a shotgun, yeah. and but various examples of that. And it, it just kind of reminded me that dark theme of like he's trying to hold these demons back and he can't do it anymore. And it kind of plays into that idea of like what we see our artists as is like having these whether they're demons or like little genius um, and according to what genius used to be used to be like a little muse right not like you're really brilliant but like having this and not being able to hold that back anymore kind of giving into it but it was a really interesting ted talk if you want to hear um her talk about it i don't remember what it was called but it was elizabeth gilbert yes and that's that is a a very interesting uh, aspect to bring up because you know we've talked about it uh you know he's an amalgamation of of lovecraft and and stephen king stephen king has had his own personal demons with with alcohol abuse and drug abuse uh and him kind of overcoming it but the way he overcame a lot of it is by writing his books a lot of his characters are inhabit some of those demons and and how he works through that kind of trauma through those characters and in his writings, so that's a very good analogy to make. Um, I also um, kind of want to, what did I want to uh, talk about? Oh, I have to wonder, uh, as many times as I've watched this movie, it was th- this most recent watch, that I, I wonder if he, is, uh, John Carpenter, is um, a little self-aware or puts a little self-awareness in this movie. I don't know if it's intentional or not or if it just happened to work out this way, but once Trent is actually in the asylum at the beginning and they're trying to quiet all the patients down and they start playing the Carpenters and his his comment is, oh, no, not the Carpenters. I wonder if that's like a little knock at any Carpenter critics of like, oh, not another John Carpenter film. It's just going to be trash or, or, you know, anything like that. I I have to wonder if that's a little tongue in cheek uh, jab at his own critics. It's a cute little jab to have. It's not it's not a a really like angry, you know, sort of shake your fist. It's just a cute little hey. Uh Well, and it's also now that I think about it, because it's the. Um, we've only just begun or, or it's only just begun it's actually referential to everything that's going to be happening um, you know it's the end of the world has only just begun and it's been brought to its knees through the actions of Trent whether he had again going back to that um, and into the apocalypse trilogy with what we talked about Prince of Darkness the destruction of free will that concept of free will is really brought to question in this movie because we want to assume that everything that Trent's doing is of his own volition. But if he is only a creation of Sutter Kane, then he has no free will. And we really see that in the final sequence with Charlton Heston when he's telling him about everything that happened and Charlton Heston's like, well, I know that's not true because you delivered me the manuscript months ago and it's already been out, you know, in print and the movie comes out and next month. And, you know, we don't even, we don't, we're not even aware of that. He's not aware of that. Uh, the audience isn't aware of that. We never see that sequence. So <coughs> that concept of free will is a really interesting aspect because even we see um, Sykes, she comes to that conclusion by the end of her uh, appearance in the movie is I've I've served my purpose I've I've done what I've been written to do and um, his story Trent's story still has to go on to finish essentially 
the story. So everything he did, every act of um, uh, of defiance, even the act of him going and watching the movie, because I know we said it's a little antithetical to his character, but if Kane wrote him that way, well, then he really had no choice but to go into the theater, sit down, eat his popcorn, and watch the movie and change. So that that re- that that's where this Apocalypse trilogy, I think, is a really interesting concept, and I'm glad we kind of explored it more. And uh, I've I read that article by Denik Geek because it was really good explanation about how each three of these movies, The Thing, uh, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness, how they really do take different concepts that are pretty much human pillars to humanity uh, and destroys them and then comes down to basically just the destruction of everything. You know, when you get to the, the end of it, like, if we have no individual sense, we have no free will, and we have no reality, then... As I can't believe I'm, I'm putting any credence to this thing about scientists have said that we're it's a 50-50 chance we're living in a simulation. <laughs> um, basically, I would say that they're just taking from his Apocalypse trilogy and kind of if you look at that, that, that does bring that into question. Cause what it, Do you know what that reminds me of? What's that? You don't remember the episode with Barkley? Uh, in Star Trek Next Generation, Moriarty's living in a simulation. Oh, yes, yes. And he's sitting on the table. Yes. That cube. Yes, that's that's the one that's like the simulation within a simulation, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it is. And then they convince, finally convince him that they figured out a way, and he's actually just in, um, I don't know, some sort of cube or something they put so he can continuously run. Right. And it ends with Barkley, like, staring at it, freaking out. <laughs> Am I in the simulation as well, <laughs> sitting on someone's desk? Well, and, you know, it, it, that is, I think we've all had those moments in our lives where we've kind of, like, you know, we wake up from a dream or something, but then we go, you know, is this real? Are, am I real? Or we have those existential questions. I think even just as a race, we've always had that. I think that's part of the reason why we want to know what the meaning of life is, you know, because we... We're just here and we're, (laughs) well, yes, of course. (laughs) Um, But, you know, we're, we, we're just cogs in a machine. We're, we're doing it. We're widgets, you know, we're just doing what we're kind of, for lack of a better term, programmed to do. And uh, so I, I, I do, that's, I think the most intriguing concept about the movie that I'm always drawn to, even though I wish certain things were fleshed out a little bit more, more exposition here, more, Exploration of the town, like I when when towns are brought into horror films and your small towns or um, like even well, Friday the Thirteenth for example, like when when Friday the Thirteenth really starts picking up for me as a series is when they finally kind of start exploring a little bit of the townspeople and their reactions to these continuous murders throughout the years by Jason and everything and and how it's impacted their town and. Um, for you know, even a better example is um, Halloween Six or even Halloween Twenty Eighteen, where we see kind of Haddonfield's reaction to what happened with Michael Myers and and what the police force is kind of doing in reaction to that. So uh, I like exploring these town aspects um, because I think that that makes you more invested in the movie. Uh, one other um, point with that is uh, it's like. 
The Crazies, the original Romero movie, and then the remake from uh, the mid-2000s. I don't remember when the, when the remake came out. They both had two sides of the coin that I wanted them combined in one movie. The original really focused on the military aspect and their involvement in the poisoning of the water and the people going crazy. And then the remake really focused on the townspeople and the impact it had on them and everyone trying to interact and, and survive through that. But one didn't balance it out. and either, Neither one balanced it out. They both over-focused on one aspect, which I wish they would have just combined. And if you balance it out, I think you get like a perfect movie because I do want to know more about the military involvement. But I also want to explore the town and its people and, and empathize with the characters a lot more. Even though we know what the characters in Hobbs End are um, creations of Cain, Trent doesn't really believe that when they get there. He, of course, thinks it's like their Disneyland, essentially. You know, it's their, they want to have their own theme park type thing. And um, I just think that we, if we had seen some of the characters from Kane's books, we do meet like one or two, but um, it doesn't get explored enough. And, and the church, I wanted more explana um, exploration of the church because the, that's always an interesting and fascinating concept to me because, again, it's a, it's a substantial thing within Sutter Kane's work, but we only see a little bit of the shots of the interior and then Sykes going down to the, I guess, the basement or whatever and finding Kane, and, and then we see that that's where the monsters are being held back, but... We get that the characters within the movie are aware of the of the things in the books, but us as an audience, we are not exposed to Sutter Kane's work. So I think it would be more beneficial to the audience if we had more of a fleshed out understanding of the town. Yeah, because uh, I think explanation on the uh, the lady who's in charge of the hotel. Yes. And her husband. So that's that's a perfect example, I think, right there of if they would explain to me more of that weird situation, what's going on with her and her husband, it would be more impactful to me. Yeah. Because just with what we get in the movie, I'm kind of like, well, that was weird, but that's the only reaction I really have. I don't really, I'm not really invested any other way other than like, well, that was odd. Right, because even, I mean, we get like one line of, because um, Sykes is the one who, who knows, because originally it was set up as a promotional thing of him quote-unquote, disappearing for a couple months, and then they were um, meant to find him and bring him back, and everything was going to be fine, and it was just all for publicity. But the fact that they actually found the Hobbs Inn, she's immediately in terror and starting to question things. Um, and so when they go into the hotel, she knows who that character is, and she throws the like one line, well, uh, that's uh, so-and-so from this book. And he's like, that can't be her, because... That's a you know a murderous woman who chops her husband up with an axe. This that woman downstairs wouldn't hurt a fly, or, or the, maybe the worst she's done is dipped her uh, her dentures in her husband's uh, booze or something like that. But so we get a tiny little bit of an explanation as to why we later see her chopping him with an axe, but not to why she's mutated into the creature she's right. kind of That's mutated into. So yeah, there there's just this. This balance, of, and I know Carpenter, I don't think, wrote this film, but it's still a John Carpenter film. Um, I, I think that that's, again, where it's its weakest is some of the writing and that it just, you expand it out about 20 more minutes. Give us a little more exposition, 
give us a little bit of a better ending or a more definitive ending or even a more open-ended ending because even though it is an open-ended ending we have enough that's cued for us that that tells yeah. us what happened to Trent because he goes to the theater so yeah. you either cut it before that or you give us like you said like 20 more minutes yeah so it, it's just one of those things I think if I were making this movie today and I were I mean, I'm sure that that was stuff that they would have had to fight for. You know, studios are always like, well, let's keep it. It's a horror film. Let's keep it at this, this, you know, this length here. And there are horror directors out there that are kind of working in opposition to that. Um, one in particular director who I did not like his first film, but I liked his second film, uh, Ari Aster in Hereditary and um, Midsummer. As much as I liked Midsummer and I absolutely hated Hereditary, both the problems with those movies are they were too long. And even though I will eventually see the Midsummer director's cut, which is like three going to be about three hours long, there there's a point where it becomes too much in excess. So I understand wanting to keep it nice and compact, but I've seen movies do that, but still kind of fit in those those moments. It's, it's kind of a reason why you can expect in the first twenty minutes of a horror film. To kind of get introduced to your characters and understand your characters and how they work within the world. And then you start kind of amping it up at the 30, 40 minute mark and start killing them off. Because then you can start experiencing the loss and the horror. So yeah, I, I think the perfect example of that, of um, when you're the right length and when you're too long, is look at Lord of the Rings versus The Hobbit. Yeah. That Peter Jackson directed. You know, Lord of the Rings had enough material there to warrant those three, um, three hour and even four hour, if you have the extended cut yep. movies, the Hobbit didn't warrant that. But I think the, that was, uh, the studios wanting to kind of mimic the same, I, I guess, success of Lord of the Rings that do a trilogy, break it out where you can really see that the length of the Hobbit series hurts it. Yeah. And it isn't as good because it doesn't need to be that long. It needs to be a little more, it needs to be tighter. It needed to be two movies yeah. at most. And that's pushing it. Well, and, and even... Um, and, you know, when then you see Lord of the Rings, and it's those th basically almost like, what, like 12 hours something or something like ridiculous. That. But it warrants it, and there's enough room there for that. And I think uh, part of the problem that, that comes with, with the Hobbit franchise, and even them doing extended, although it's fine with their extended editions of, of those movies, is I think that that was Jackson trying to fit bits and pieces of Silmarillion into it because... One, he did need something to flesh out the the runtime of it. And two, it's the closest I think you'll ever get to something like the Silmarillion to being made into a movie format. And it's, it, it is one of those things where it's like, <clears throat> you didn't, as much as I liked seeing Gandalf's adventures, because it, it really does kind of fill in the blanks from the book of The Hobbit of where did Gandalf go? What was he doing? Why was he gone for so long? But, you know, then you're introducing Radagast, which you, even though he only has a minor, very minor role in Fellowship of the Ring, you made him very important to this, and then you brought in the whole council, and you kind of, you're setting up things for Lord of the Rings, but it's it's not Lord of the Rings, it's The Hobbit. It was written as a children's book, it was meant to be kind of a children's movie, essentially, and whereas Lord of the Rings was Tolkien kind of taking the next step and fleshing out a grand epic, so... Yeah, I would. Like I would totally agree. Example of that. Um, and that's you know, if this 
if In the Mouth of Madness was was based off of a book, maybe then at least I could uh, enjoy it maybe a little bit more because at least then I know that the book could explore those other areas. And so then I can use that as a nice balancing act of going, okay, well, I have questions about this, this, and this. Well, the book goes there, or I hear, you know, Trent's inner thoughts and stuff like that. So it would have been kind of, I think, a cool promotional uh, material to have someone as a quote-unquote Sutter Kane wrote a novelization of In the Mouth of Madness, and, uh, you know, working in conjunction with the screenwriters and stuff like that so that they weren't yeah. overstepping bounds. would have been an interesting, uh, I think, marketing tool for the movie because I honestly, I don't... This is it's a lesser known or it's not lesser known. I think it's more well known than something like Prince of Darkness, but it's it's one of those Carpenter films that I think kind of gets lost in the in the miasma of everything. Um, I know. Let's see here. Its budget was eight million, and it only made three on its domestic, and then its worldwide gross just barely broke even. It, well, it 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 made about yeah it made about nine hundred twenty thousand dollars over its original budget, uh, so it's it's one of those ones where it's like, it's good but I don't think enough people and again I think it's it's a cult, become a cult classic now for some people a lot of Carpenter films have really become cult classics for for people like you know you it's the first experience for you and having that nice reaction to it as well. Um, is there anything else? You also um, kind of brought up an idea about, like, he has these very interesting concepts and in that they don't um, always get fully fleshed out well enough or they don't balance it between the horror and the sci-fi. One uh, movie which I would recommend you go you, you watch, you probably won't like it as much as you would you like something like this or even like the, the thing where they live, or they live, um would be Ghost of Mars. I think it's it's very underrated. It's not his best work, but it, it is also a very interesting concept because you have uh, humans living on Mars. They're run by a matriarchy, uh, which is a very interesting concept for, for, for the movie. I mean, ma matriarchy is not an interesting concept now in 2020, <laughs> but uh, it, it's an interesting way to see like civilization within that movie context evolving into a matriarchy. Uh, and these colonies and then them unearthing um, essentially the movie, th these ghosts that start inhabiting bodies of the colonists and what they do. Uh, that one is like one of those movies where, again, that concept is really cool and really interesting, but there's not enough of the backstory that's fleshed out with it so that when you're trying to understand why they're rising up, like there, there is an explanation I think that's, that's told by one of the characters but it's not good enough for us as an audience to be like, okay, that makes perfect sense for me. I can go ahead and, and deal with that. <laughs> but it, it's one of those ones where it's like, I don't know if it's a guilty pleasure, but I will watch it. Ice Cube is completely cheesy in the movie, which I, I don't think hurts it. It, it's, it is just kind of funny. Uh, it was my first exposure to Jason Statham, even when he had still a little bit of hair before he just decided <laughs> to start shaving the rest of it. Uh, it's got Natasha Henstridge in it. It's got Pam Greer. It's got a really good cast, and I think they all really work well off each other. But it's also a just disjointed storytelling method too, because it's Natasha Henstridge's character who um, recounts everything to the matriarchy. But then when you have 
other characters are then telling her stories during their investigation that then she's relaying. It's like you're, you're jumping around too much from too different, too many different perspectives. But uh, we'll save Ghost of Mars for a review another time. But <laughs> I think uh, I think that's going to do it. I don't have any much else to say about about the movie. So any any other final thoughts from you on it? No, I don't. Should we just go ahead and rate it? Yep. Um, for this one that I really liked, this is the 4.0 that maybe some of you were waiting for. <laughs> well, you know, it's going to be funny because I think that's where I'm going to land as well. Uh, it's a it's a 4 for me. I think when it comes into, um, into like, a ranking of Carpenter films, I, I you know, most people, I think, would put Halloween at top. Um, for me, it's going to be uh, probably The Thing... Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness, uh, Halloween, and then They Live. As of John Carpenter movies that I have watched, I know you haven't watched Halloween, so... Uh, but, yeah, it's it's one of those ones where it's just the concept is so damn intriguing that even with the problems I have with it, I enjoy the movie far too much. And, and you and I are big readers, too, so, like, that, that concept of them going after this writer and then his works are becoming reality is a really kind of, I think, cool aspect to delve into. Yeah, really, really intriguing. All right, so I think that's going to do it for this week. Um, Leslie, I think you have a a little announcement to make here, right? (laughs) We have, like, little fanfare. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have anything queued up, but... (laughs) Um, Okay, so... um... I we will you already announced the bonus episode so correct yes I'll be doing the bonus episode on Saturday, and then I'll be taking a little bit of a step back so I can focus on getting my stuff up and running for all of you. Who, <laughs> anybody give my elevator pitch if you are a lover of science fiction like I am, books, TV, movies, then we are doing a completely science fiction um, focused section that will be the Leslie Monday podcast. And I am focusing on getting the websites and all that good stuff up and running. But if you want to go ahead and follow me on Twitter or Instagram, it is at Leslie Monday Pod or at Leslie Monday Podcast. All right. And then you're going to be pretty much, I think, what, uh, launching in sometime in January 2021? Yep. Tentatively? Yeah, tentatively, our launch date is January 4th for the first episode, okay. which will be starting going episode by episode with Season 5 of The Expanse. Ooh, yeah, that's, that's right, that's coming be, out. That's going to be the opener, <laughs> and I'm also going to have a Patreon-exclusive show. I just want to give a shout-out to any Star Trek fans. My Patreon-exclusive show, because there is so much Star Trek, and that's why I'm separating it, <laughs> um, <laughs> but you, I might be crazy, but I'm going to go through Star Trek from the beginning, episode by episode, movie by movie, 13 years worth at one episode a week. That's what we're going to do. It's going to be kind of uh, uh, Star Trek 101. So if you're somebody who's never watched Star Trek before and just wanted to watch it along with somebody else, that's going to be the show for you. Um, if you're a veteran and you just want to see what I have to say... You know, or you know, you're just somebody who absolutely hates it, and you want to try and understand. I'm just gonna kind of walk you all through it. We're gonna watch each episode and then talk about it, and maybe talk about what was going on at the time. Uh, but uh, that'll be the Patreon exclusive show. I'll make sure uh, Pat signs up for it because he absolutely hates <laughs> Star Trek. So uh, maybe maybe we can finally win him over. Of course, he's not here this week to uh, to, to defend himself, but. Uh, that that does sound 
And spoiler alert, yes, you are crazy. Uh, <laughs> that is a lot of content, but I, I think that's also a really good good idea. And uh, I'm really excited uh, for you to launch that. And uh, any other parts of that you want to plug or... Is that it? Um, no, that's that's pretty much the focus right okay. now. Um, I did, like I said, I did want to split out the Star Trek from all the other science fiction because I feel like there are plenty of Star Trek or Star Wars 100% channels and oh, things yeah. out there. And I'm, uh, like you said, like we're both voracious readers and things like that. So there's so much science fiction out there that I want to talk about, but Star Trek does have a, a special place in my heart. So I wanted to give it its own special, like, this is its own spots, this is its own show, but then leave myself available to focus on all the other sci-fi out there, because there's so much, and it's so good. I just finished watching the Mars series this week from Netflix that was the half-documentary, half-drama. Mm-hmm. It was really good, and I intend to make the first website website content post about that series. Okay. All right. Well, we're really excited for it. Um this is kind of our first step. I know you're going to have things out there that we don't currently have. I know you're working on your website and stuff like that, which is stuff we have planned, but we just haven't had the time to really sit down and focus on. Um, but I know we're really, really excited for it. You're, we're, we wanted to start kind of this network of podcasts, and you'll be kind of the first entry into that. And uh, So I think that's a really exciting thing, and I know I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure Pat's looking forward to it. And, again, anyone that's a, a lover of sci-fi – I know you're a huge fan of sci-fi, so I know you're going to give it its due diligence and, and discussion and breakdown and analysis. So we're all really, really excited for it. And as much as we'll hate not having you on here next month, we do have a, a filler. Of course, Pat will also be stepping um, back a little bit to focus on you know spending time with his wife and stuff like that. Uh, they've been having a really busy couple months here since they got married and. Uh, you know, Izzy's busy with school and he's been working, so they want to kind of, you know, make sure that they spend some time together. So I can't. For the holiday season, too. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's going to be, you know, and it's already 2020 has already been kind of a weird and awful year. So, uh, you know, can't fault them for that. But fortunately, uh, my brother uh, is going to be stepping in to kind of guest host for a few episodes. Uh, we might take a couple episodes, off, uh, a couple weeks off in, in November as well, just because it, it will be holiday season. Um, we'll have to figure out how to fit some Mandalorian reviews in here before too long, because we do have that uh, coming up. Maybe we'll wait till all the episodes have aired and we've watched it, and we'll just review it all in one sitting. Um, but I do want to make sure we have you on for that and Pat for that, um, so we'll make sure we fit that into a schedule. But... Yep, that's just some of the, the changes that are going to be coming up in the next month or so. And, uh, you know, Leslie will, all, will always be coming back onto the podcast at some point for, you know, probably a little bit more infrequently. But, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. Right. Um, and our day jobs. Ex- yeah. If we, if we were rich, we, we wouldn't have that issue. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. I think that's going to do it uh, for this week. So, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at CriticsNTCynics. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook at the Critics Not Cynics podcast. Um, you can write into the podcast at criticsnotcynics at gmail.com. Follow us on Podbean, iTunes, uh, Amazon Music, I believe we're on there, uh, Spotify, anywhere you get your, get your podcasts. Um, but that'll do it, and we'll talk to you next time.